This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this special holiday episode of Once Upon a Crime. This episode will be the very last one of the year. I'll be going on a short break starting next week to enjoy the holidays with my family. Regular episodes will return on January 14th, and I'm looking forward to some really fascinating cases and new series that I'm already working on when I return in the new year. But not to worry, while I won't be putting out regular episodes until then, there will still be a couple of special episodes that will land in your feed over the break. I'll be sharing at least one interview and maybe even a special crossover episode for you. So stay subscribed so you don't miss anything. This week, I have something special for you as well. One of Once Upon a Crime's most popular episodes ever was the discussion of the Lacey Peterson case I put out last December with a co-host, my sister Yolanda. Yolanda and her husband Mark produced their own true crime podcast called Not Perfect or Functional, where together they discuss some lesser-known cases. Yolanda and I decided to research and discuss a controversial case that has been debated for some time as a special holiday episode of this podcast. This is our discussion of the Darley Routier case. So this case is, and I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, what do you think? I think a lot of people know this case. I think this is, I mean, it's been around for a while, first of all. And I also think that um, there's been a lot of media coverage of it as well. Yeah, and, I think some of the younger people may not know it as well just because it was been around for a while but there's been a lot of new interest in it just because of all of the new uh, media you know the new uh, Netflix series and different things that are bringing all the true crime to the front forefront this is the Darley Routier story and a couple of reasons I wanted to cover it is first is because there is a lot, there has always been, I guess, since the beginning of this um, case, two camps, like one camp saying she's absolutely guilty and the other camp saying she's absolutely in- innocent. So that makes for an interesting case to discuss because you can pull from points on each side and see, okay, why, why do some people fall on this side or the other? So that's one of the reasons. It's very much a John Bonet um, Ramsey type, you know, do you believe or do you not believe? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that's the thing too. So when we're talking about doing this case and what I was looking at, because I find it really interesting and I didn't know a lot about it. I've been pulling up some other things since, I mean, I'd heard about it. I knew the case. Um, I knew some of the points, but I hadn't really done a lot of research on it until this. And so, cause I really wanted to see what, what are people saying? You know, why are, why are some people believing that this side or that side? So. Yeah. I um, found this really interesting too. Yeah. And then the other thing too, is I thought about it and I thought, well, is this going to be controversial? Because if we come down on one side or the other, of course, there's going to be the other side that says, no, 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 you're wrong or whatever. So what I tried to do was find sources um, on both sides that kind of looked at both sides. So that one video that we'll talk about that we both watched, they kind of did that. They went and they reinvestigated the case, coming at it with a fresh perspective saying, you know, we don't know. She could be 
completely railroaded or she could be completely guilty. Let's see. And these were, you know, detectives. Um, so some of that was helpful to me to kind of look at the points myself um, from, you know, what I've seen. Because a lot of times you'll look at a case and people will be biased on one side or the other and you're getting that slant on it. And then I found another book that I felt did a pretty good thorough job and um, using not just, you know, some newspaper accounts, but using all of the accounts uh, from the trial transcripts to DNA uh, test results that it came out then and, and later on, polygraph test tra um, transcripts, crime scene photos. I mean, went through all of that and, you know, he tried to pick it apart and say, okay, what, what do we see here? And so there's a couple of, there will be a couple of, of, of major points in this case that I'm going to say, you know, it could fall either way. Um, and I think that that's true definitely for this case, but, you know, we'll get there and we'll, you know, kind of see what you think and what I think and what people are saying. But, um, oh, so the name of that book was, and I'll have that in the show notes too, is called A Killer in My House, The Jolly Routier Story by David Kennedy. And there is all of the crime scene photos, which, uh, you know, <laughs> it was kind of late last night and I'm flipping through. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Not, not fun to, to look at. And I usually don't. Um, look at, you know, those crime scene photos type of thing. Cause it's especially, you know, this case, it's a little disturbing, but, um, you know, I didn't look at it up close and with a magnifying glass. So. <laughs> <laughs> I so, don't think you really want to. No, you really, you really don't. I mean, some people do, some people really want to dive into that and get into all that stuff. And, um, and I get that when I always want to put pictures to the story, but right. sometimes I'm like, Oh, why did I do that to myself? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, what I like a lot of times is like, um, what do you call it? Like a floor plan of like where things happened, you know, to get it kind of, yeah, a that very eye opening when you yeah, check that, that out from above and can see it. Yeah. And this one for sure, this one for sure. And we'll talk about that because it's all in one place that this happens. And, um, you know, the floor plan and the pictures, they took pictures of just the areas in the house and stuff that really kind of helped me to get a sense of how that all laid out. But anyway, so what I'm going to do is just basic, go over a, a few of the basic facts of the case um, for those people who don't know about this case or maybe haven't, you know, listen, you know, heard about it for a while, um, just to kind of refresh your memory. But we're not going to go into every single detail because it is out there, but it'll be enough so people can follow along either way, whether they know about it or not. Um, so this this happened on June 6, 1996. And the main player in this, her name is Darlie Lynn Routier. She was six, uh, 26 years old. And at 2.30 in the morning on June 6, she called 911. Um, her home, and this is another reason why it's probably interesting to you, is because of where it was located, right? Yeah, it's real close. Yeah, super close. Um, and I heard her family lives in Plano and, you know, that's really in your neck, neck of your woods over there too. So, um, totally, so the home, yeah. yeah. So the home's located at uh, 5801 Eagle drive in Rowlett, Texas. And, um, it's, so we'll talk a little bit, you'll, I'll kind of ask you for your, you know, what you know about that area, um, a little bit as we get there. But, um, so anyway, she calls 911 and she says that her house has been broken into, an intruder came into her house and stabbed her two boys. Her boys are six-year-old Devin and five-year-old Damon. She says that she has also been attacked. Her throat has been, and her throat has been slashed. She's bleeding. 
um, at the time that this happened, she lives in a large, it's a large home. She was downstairs sleeping on the couch. Her kids were sleeping with pillows and blankets on the floor near her. Her husband, Darren, was also home and he had been asleep upstairs. They have an, uh, I get differing between six and eight months old, but I kept seeing eight months old. So I'm going to say about eight months old, um, eight month old baby named, uh, another son named Drake. And the reason she was sleeping downstairs because the baby was um, keeping her awake at night. He said she was a light sleeper. She would hear him turning and tossing in his crib and would wake her up at night. So she stayed downstairs while her husband stayed upstairs near the baby's crib. Um, her husband said uh, that he had locked the front and back doors before going to bed about 1 a.m. And that the baby was already asleep in his crib. So she calls 911 and we'll go over the details of that call in a little bit but police arrive within a few minutes Darren walks outside and is the first to meet officer the first officer who um, sees him coming out to the front of the house and he follows him inside Darley at this point is still on the phone with 911 she's holding a towel to her neck the first officer says he observes she is covered in blood Darren only has on jeans no shirt no shoes uh, the officer finds Devin, that's the uh, six-year-old, lying face up. He has uh, what he appears to be several stab wounds to his chest. His eyes are open, vacant. He says he looks clearly deceased. Damon, a few feet away, um, was also stabbed, but there's some signs of life, uh, just a, a little bit of a pulse. So officer at that point tells Darley to lay towels across Devin and apply pressure. He says she ignores him and screams at him that the intruder has fled into the garage and might still be there. So, of course, he's going to have to um, check this out. But the problem is, is he's there alone. He, he comes, the first officer arrives is by himself. So he has to wait for backup before, apparently, that's the procedure. Before you go after a suspect, you're supposed to have back, backup. So he's waiting for that. At that point, other uh, police and paramedics arrive now, with backup, the officers follow a path of blood through the house, from the living room to, into the kitchen, into a small utility room beyond that that leads to a garage. They turn on the light in the garage, and they find no one in there. And the blood trail they, seems to end in the utility room, so right before they get into the garage. They also find a bloody butcher knife lying on top of the kitchen counter. Darley has told the 911 operator um, previously, while she was on the phone with her still, that she picked up the knife after running after the intruder. She, she says she went, ran after the intruder, saw him drop it. Instinctively, she said she picked it up and put it on the counter. Um, and she does mention that she worries that she may have messed up the fingerprints because she touched the knife. Uh, Devin is found to be dead on the scene. Damon is rushed to the hospital but uh, dies before reaching the hospital. Darley is rushed to Baylor Hospital and they, you know, to check on her wounds. She has been sliced across the neck. She was stitched up and kept in the hospital for at least a couple of days. Um, mainly, they said, because they were worried about the trauma um, of what she'd been through and, you know, how that might affect her. So they kept her. But they said that we'll talk about her wounds, but they said, you know, it wasn't life threatening at that point. So. What happens here next is that police hear several versions of Darley's story about what happened that night. Um, they are inconsistent. They soon decide that the crime scene doesn't match her story and suspect her of killing her children 
And after the investigation, she's arrested on June 18th. So just uh, about a week later. Um, after a month-long trial, she is found guilty of one count of capital murder and the death of her five-year-old, Damon. She is never charged with the murder of Devin. And I, maybe you have heard more about that. I don't, well, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, she is sentenced to death on February 4th, 1997, and is still sitting on death row today. So that's kind of the, the you know, encapsulating. And we'll get into some of the details. But, I mean, what are your first initial impressions of this case when either you heard about it or when you recently, you know, looked into it again? What are your, you know, I guess, big takeaways when you hear that synopsis? When I first um, heard about the story, and what I heard about it, I guess, back then and probably, you know, in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so, I truly thought, wow, she got railroaded. She totally got railroaded because I heard little bits and pieces here in Texas. Um, and, you know, we'll get into it later, but obviously there's a video that was ca captured by uh, news crews that really sealed her fate, I think. And I know, I know that's a big thing to get into later. <laughs> it turns out being to be very prejudicial against her. Oh, totally. And yeah. then um, in doing this research, uh, to go over this with you, I think my first impressions have completely been swayed the opposite direction because um, in hearing more about the actual forensic evidence, and that's, that's the biggest thing here, um, once you get down to, you know, everything about that. I think that is very enlightening. Mm -hmm. no, regardless of how you feel about her or seen any of the interviews that she's given, believe that she's um, what she's saying or don't believe what she's saying. Once you get down to that, then I think that kind of speaks volumes. Yeah, that's that's where you're going to either. It's going to, to me, the, the case goes one way or the other, depending on mm -hmm. what you find out about the details um, of the case. So let's get, give me, a, I'll give you a, a quick background of Darley and her husband, just to know um, a little bit about them, because it, it does play into this case. Um, Dar uh, Darren and Darley, they met as teenagers. They dated through high school. Darren is two years older than Darley. He left to go to college in Dallas. Um, she was still in school. So they were having a going away point. I found, I, I like when you find these little stories, because I always want to know, like, before all of this stuff happened, what is there anything indicating uh -huh. what kind of people these are, what their personalities are like, or how they react to things? Or it may not mean a lot, but I feel like it at least maybe gives you a flavor of the people that we're talking about. And this one was pretty. Um, this one was pretty interesting because so they're having a going away party for Darren because he's going away to college, and people who were there. He's going so far, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. You didn't even think about that. You're right. He's what, how far is that? Like 20 miles away? Or something? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So, but you know, I mean, I'm sure he's gonna be busy at school. He's not gonna, you know, see his friends and whatever. So her friends say that, you know, people that were at the party say that Darlie got angry that she wasn't getting enough attention. And I, I just picture, you know, her sitting there like pouting and, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, she was a teenage girl. Okay. So yeah. her boyfriend's going away and, you know, maybe she's used to getting all the attention. And oh, we, this is one thing we didn't say. We didn't really um, describe her. So how would you oh, please do? Describe? <laughs> I'll let you describe her. <laughs> Um, okay, so this was the 90s, so she had the big hair, which was be bleached blonde, 
but she's not very a natural blonde, blonde at times, very platinum blonde at times, correct? Oh, platinum blonde. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, apparently has had some work done. Yeah, I mean, in her it, upper midsection. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll actually get into that because there is, uh, that, I mean, this is all part of just kind of giving you an idea of, of her and when she's, there's pictures of her when she's all made up and I mean, she's very attractive when she's all made up. Yeah, she's a head turner. Yeah, mm-hmm. she, she's, yeah, she's a pretty girl. Darren is, is, I mean, he, he's, he's typical looking. I mean, he's not ugly. Um, yeah. But I would say that, I mean, I think what people were looking at them would say, wow, he really um, dated above his, you know, whatever. Well, how do you, how do you say that? <laughs> His pay grade, yeah. yeah, above his pay grade because I mean, you know, he's just an average-looking guy, right? But glasses, um, yeah, glasses, kind of, you know, mullet, hair, yeah, mullet. Yeah, was the nineties. It was Texas, um, and maybe even if it wasn't Texas, it might have been like that. But um, so, I mean, she she's an attractive girl, and apparently, the 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 stories are that she did like to have a lot of attention. She liked to flirt. She liked uh, men's attention. She was kind of like the person in the room who just kind of stood out and then she would, she knew it and she kind of played up to that kind of thing. That's, that's at least the impression we get. So anyway, her friends were saying that she was angry, wasn't getting enough attention at this party. She left the party alone because she got upset and left. And then she comes back and she's frantic. And she says that someone had tried to rape her. Well, almost all the people there said, oh, we didn't believe her. Which tells you something, you know, I mean, because somebody tells you that, wow, you know, somebody tried to rape me, that's something you're going to pay attention to. I mean, I would hope so. And you would believe the person say, oh my gosh. But apparently it was either the way she went about it, the way it came across, or just because how they knew how she was, that they doubted it. And they all thought that she just did it for attention. Well, hopefully that was true because otherwise that kind of sucks that nobody believed her. But anyway, they end up marrying in 1988. Uh, Darren starts a small company called Test Neck. Test Neck. How do you say it? Test Neck. It sounds like neck, but it's Test NEC. (laughs) And it it was a company that tested electronic components. And he first started it in his home. So, you know, it's kind of a techie, geeky guy and started this business, which ended up being pretty successful. Their first child, Devin, was born in on uh, June 14th, 1989. So a year after they were married. Uh, Damon was born a couple of years later on uh, February 19th, 1991. So, so she was young. Yeah, very young. Very young. Like 19. Yeah, just right out of high, you know, it was one of those right out of high school, yeah. married, right? It does. It seems like it happens here a lot more than what I remember from California. But okay, yeah. I mean, yeah, different times and places. I guess it's different. But so he starts doing really well in this business. It's growing. He rents space in. It says an upscale office building. I don't know what that means, but you know, really a nice you know area. He's making good income. They purchase a house in the Del Rock Heights Edition, which is said. And you have to tell me whether you know because. Here's the thing. When you read these stories, it'll use words like an affluent suburb, but I don't know if it is. You know what I mean? <laughs> they may be just saying that to make it sound better. I don't know. But I mean, it looks like a pretty nice neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. No, it, it was. was. It was yeah. an affluent suburb of Rowlett, and they bought this house in 1992 for $130,000, which doesn't seem like a lot now. It was then in, yeah. in Texas during okay. that time. Um 
I would say, and in that size house, by the way, um, it was, because from what I looked, what I saw, it was, it was large. Um, in comparison, uh, we paid not too much more, uh, than that maybe almost 10 years later for a smaller house. When the sprawl happens in this area, that's when the prices start to go up, obviously, when they're building out. Mm -hmm. So um, it was a good neighborhood, but you could probably get a house for, you know, at that time, maybe fifty, sixty thousand, like a regular, you know, starter home. Okay, so this is like double then an average home, double mm-hmm. the cost of an average. Yeah, home. It's, a, it's a huge house. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and the neighborhood. I mean, it looks it looks pretty nice because I was watching that video where those guys are driving around the detectives, and it looks like mm-hmm. a really nice neighborhood. So, even now, yeah, yeah, even now, they spent they started spending money because they had money, and uh, they but they really started spending some money. So here's some of the things that were listed um, as their purchases at that time. They spent $12,000 for drapes for their house, which is quite a bit of money. Drapes are not cheap, but that's a lot of money. Um, $600 well, for- Well, there were a lot of windows on that house. Yeah. And yeah, when you buy those new houses, they don't have one window covering. You got to buy all those nope. window coverings. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, $600 for a fountain for the front yard. Um, $9,000 for a redwood spa in the backyard. And here's the big one. They purchased a 30-foot cabin cruiser and docked it at Lay. Oh, sorry, docked it at Lake Ray Hubbard Marina. I don't mm-hmm. know where Hubbard is, but a marina usually. It's, it's a nice. It's a very nice. It's a very nice. Yeah, you also have to pay for the um, the actual uh, rental of the dock. So. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, a boat is an expensive thing to have, no matter what. I mean, this is a and this is a 30-footer. That's not a tiny thing, you know. Darren bought a Jaguar that he used to drive to work. Uh, Darley, people said, you know, always showed up wearing lots of jewelry. You know, kind of flashy, a little flashy. Um, liked her clothes, liked her jewelry. But, you know, they had the money, I guess. So that's what she enjoyed and she'd bet. But here's a funny one. They spent $800 for a tombstone for their cat at a pet cemetery. It, I mean, was, maybe that's not a lot. Was the cat actually like dead at the time or was it an advance of... <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see a picture of the tombstone. I don't know. But I would assume he had already died. But <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, people love their cats, whatever. That's fine. But, you know, they had the money to do it. That's what we're saying. Um, she was a full-time mom um, raising her kids. And everybody said she was a good mother. She, you know, seemed to do it on her kids. They had, you know, big birthday parties, you know, the whole thing, right? They also said she was a very good neighbor and a generous person. She would cook for her neighbors, like if they were sick or if they were down on their luck or if they needed something, she'd be there. Um, She even made the mortgage payment for a friend who was going through cancer treatment, which is, you know, a very nice thing to do. But she was also described by others as vain and materialistic. And we want to talk about the breast implants. So, okay, a lot of people get (laughs) breast implants, right? I mean, that's, that's, yeah, whatever. Uh, she decided to get double E size and she's not a big girl. She's not a no. tall girl. She's an average height girl, I would say. So yeah, that that's a, a little flashy, but people were like, see, that's kind of how she was. She liked a lot of attention. That was just part and parcel of how she liked to come across and get that attention. Well, here's the thing though. Right there, I start thinking, okay, now this is might break the other way for her because people are going to start to judge that in you know just because just because they have an impression of of somebody 
saying, oh, she's got these big, huge boobs and she has her hair all black. Okay, well, it doesn't mean they're a bad person, but it does tend to flavor some people's, I don't know, thoughts about that person, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, and of course, because- I mean, I could see, well, yeah, that's that's going to be, you know, first impressions, obviously, or um, say a lot. Mm-hmm. Um but and maybe it says the wrong thing in this case, you know. There was some reports from neighbors that said that the kids were left alone and, and unsupervised, which is a direct yeah, contradiction. that. Yeah, direct contradiction to what other people were saying that she was a good mother. And other people said that she sometimes seemed annoyed at, the, at her kids. I'm like, well, who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't sometimes seem annoyed at her kids? So at a Christmas party not long before um, all of this took place, People said that they would. They saw Darlie and Darren arguing and shouting. Um, they said he was jealous. She was flirting with other men and dancing with other men, and that there was rumors swirling around of or of one or both of them cheating. Which I did not see any corroboration for. I don't know if that was just rumor or or not. But anyway, that was what was out there um, in the neighborhood. They had their third son, who was born on October eighteenth, nineteen ninety five, who they named Drake. Um, after she had Drake, she suffered from postpartum depression. She was also upset about um, not being able to lose her baby weight after she had the baby. And she um, did admit that she had gone on diet pills. And diet pills in the 90s were, I don't know. Speed. Yeah, speed. And they were pretty <laughs> common. But, you know, and that's something I want to bring up later on. But um, because I don't think it's been mentioned very much. Anyway, in 1995, uh, their company, Darren's company, does well financially. There was um, half a million dollars in gross revenues, and he received a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars salary, which is good money for nineteen ninety-five, right? Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, even now it's pretty good money in Texas. Um, that's still good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now. Um, but in the next year, nineteen ninety-six, their company took a downturn, and they started getting behind on their bills. They were at least one month late on their mortgage payments. And they owed uh, $10,000 in back taxes. This was all brought up during the investigation. They found all this. He, at that point, and this tells you something about him, you know, he's, he's, he's hustling. He starts a second business and he uses that boat, that 30-foot cabin cruiser he, he owns, and starts taking people around the lake for sunset cruises, which he would charge them for, of course. And, uh, but by all accounts, Darlie's continues to spend money just as normal like she had before. Um, she was still planning, at that point, she was planning a vacation with her girlfriends to go to Cancun, which, uh, well, you know, priorities. Priorities, yeah. <laughs> yeah, mortgage, Cancun, mortgage, Cancun. Huh? I think I'll go to Cancun. Three children, yeah. Cancun. <laughs> Cancun. Yeah. So then she kept a diary, and on May 3rd, 1996, a month before the murders happened, she wrote an entry and addressed it to her three children, and it says, I hope you'll forgive me for what I'm about to do. My life has been such a hard fight for so long, and I just can't find the strength to fight anymore. This is said to have been a suicide note. Um, right after that, she was talking to somebody, I guess she had been talking to people about how she was feeling so down. And she said that one of the reasons that she was so down is that she hadn't gotten her period in over a year, I guess you know, since before the baby and after the baby. And then she said a few days after this, she did get a period and then her mood soared and she never thought about committing suicide again. That seems pretty simplistic. I don't know a lot about 
the hormone thing, you know, postpartum. That, that does seem interesting that she would feel compelled to want to commit suicide. And then this one thing and, you know, happens with her hormones and then all of a sudden everything's okay again. Yeah. So yeah. it makes me think that maybe for whatever reason, you know, she, she got over that hump, but I, uh, you know, who knows what it was. Right. And this is something people will bring up later and say, this is her again, trying to gain attention. So that will mm. be, that's another, you know, one of those. No, that makes more sense, stories probably. that yeah. people will bring up and say, you know, I think it was just for attention, that kind of thing. Um, so I mean, uh, if anything, I think I would have probably blamed it more on postpartum depression than anything else. Right. You know? Exactly. Yeah. A few days before the murders, they had actually applied at the bank for a loan of $5,000 and they had been denied. That was on June 1st. So this was right before the murders, which if you have so much money, why do you need a loan for $5,000? Um. I mean, I could see why they would get denied if you know, his business wasn't doing well and she, he was the only breadwinner. Right. Then yeah, and they had, they I, had I could debts see. piling up and, sure, you know, that kind of thing. Well, you know how hard it is if you're self-employed to, to right. get a loan sometimes. That's so. true. But it just seems such a small amount. I mean, I could see if they were applying for like 50000 or 100000 but 5000 and not to, I mean, that's that's pretty, I don't know. That, yeah, I'm wondering I, if that was just to go towards a uh, mortgage or something, maybe right. back, back mortgage and, you know, yeah. something. Yeah, just like a, what do you call that, a bridge Temporary loan. loan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, th- now we're going to talk about the 911 call because, you know, I always like going over these 911 calls. Of course, this is one of those things you can say, well, who knows how anybody would act during an emergency. Of course, we don't. But there are some things that um, did come up in the trial, did come up in the investigation that I think are important to point out. I always want to look at the first things that they say in the 911 call. And the first words basically out of her mouth were, okay, your kids are stabbed on the floor, bleeding. Again, we don't know exactly how anybody would react, but I think most people would assume that they would call and say, Oh my God, I need, I need an ambulance. I need, you know, my kids have been hurt. My kids are bleeding. My kids have been stabbed, whatever. Um, That would be your first thing. The first thing she says is somebody came here. They broke in and she sounds very frantic. She doesn't sound, you know, she's not, sounds very frantic. Somebody came here. They broke in. They just stabbed me and my children. Okay. So she does talk about the stabbing that her kids have been stabbed. But the first thing she says is somebody came in and they broke in. It seems a little backwards to me, but again, I don't know um, how anybody would react. But the other thing too is she says they broke in and later she says they, but later she would only only mention one attacker and this will come up later. 30 seconds into the call, because remember her husband's home too. So 30 seconds into the call, you can hear her talking to Darren, her husband. At 124, she says, Darren, I don't know who it was. So she's still talking about the who and we'll... You'll see several times where this happens. At 126, now this is to me way out of left field. She says, we got to find out who it was. Is that your first concern a minute into a 911 call when your kids are, you know, dead or dying? No, my uh, my personal would be, where's the ambulance? Are they coming? Where are they? Right. You know, and you've heard other 911 calls where... They're like, are they here yet? I'm going to go stand outside and wait for them to come. Where's the ambulance? I need it right away. I mean, that's right. normally 
Yeah. And, and as a mom, that would normally kick in. I mean, if it were me, I would probably, you know, be trying to stop myself from grabbing the kids up and putting them in the car and racing to the hospital myself. Exactly. You yeah. Know? But, something, yeah. something to help, you know, to see if you can help save your children. So at this point, the operator has been getting paramedics, police. You can hear her, talk, you know, calling all the all the people that she needs to get to the scene. Uh, she asked Darlie to calm down and tell her what happened at this point. At 1.56 um, into the call, she says, somebody came in while I was sleeping. Me and my little boys were sleeping downstairs. Some man, now she's saying one man, not they. Some man came in, stabbed my babies, stabbed me. I woke up. I was fighting. He ran out through the garage. They threw the knife down. Now she's come back to they. My babies are dying. They're dead. Oh my God. She keeps saying over and on. This is the thing that really bothers me on this time one call is she keeps saying, my babies are dying. They're dead. They're dead. They're dying. They're dead. They're dying. They're dead. She says it so many times. And again, I don't know how anybody would react in an emergency, but as a mom, I don't think I would put that out there in the universe. You know, it just sounds like a fatalistic kind of way of thinking like, oh, you know, Instead of, we need help, we need help, you know. Um, and again, if you're saying that, wouldn't you also be saying, where's the ambulance? I need it here. Right. You know, I need help. Somebody get here, help me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Not she, just repeating the same thing over and over. Right. The operator, um, she keeps talking, directing people to the house, all of this. At 2.53, Darley says, I feel really bad. I think I'm dying. Um, and at this point, I don't think she said anything about her. She said she'd been stabbed. But she's talking, so obviously, you know, um, and she's talking loudly. She's screaming. She's yelling. You know, all of that is going on. So she so doesn't. How long is it taking? Um, I think I had it down here. It took. It probably. I think it was about between four and a half and five minutes before they got there. Okay, because you've got. Hold on here. Oh, three at three forty. It says at three forty, officer is on the scene, but not the paramedic. Yeah, you've got. But it says the first phone call was at, oh, is that minute one? Yeah. 24? Yeah. That's oh, what, yeah. okay. I was getting confused. I thought it was one twenty four in the morning. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no it's at the, that's how many minutes. So how many minutes passed uh, during this okay. call? So at 3.03, right after she says she thinks she's dying, she starts asking when the help will arrive. Um, at 3.12, she says, who would do this? Who would do this? So again, she's going back to thinking about who did this and you know, I don't know. That just seemed uh-huh. kind of odd to me. Um, at three minutes and 30 seconds, a dog is heard barking and this will come up later. There's a, a point why I put that down. At 3.40, the first officer arrives on the scene. So less than four minutes later, the first officer's on the scene. Um, the operator can hear him tell Darley to, quote, look for a rag. Um, he would later testify that he told Darley to press a rag on Damon's wounds. Because Damon was still, as far as I could tell, still alive. Um, mm-hmm. At four minutes and five seconds into the call, Darlie mentions the knife. She says, they left a knife laying on. And then the operator at that point says, don't touch anything. She says that she has already. And then says, I already touched it and picked it up. So this is going to come back because, again, um, talking about finger this is going to come up multiple times about what she touched and what fingerprints might be and that kind of thing oh yeah 
No, uh, the note here says she says they left a knife laying on. We assume she's going to say on the counter because that's where they found it. They found it on the counter in the kitchen. She will tell officers that she saw the intruder drop the knife on the floor and she picked it up and put it on the counter. So first she says they left the knife laying on, you know, and it was on the counter, but then she says she put it on the counter. So that's, you know, that's a little bit uh, confusing there. Anyway, she repeatedly asks, while on the phone, who would do this? Why would they do this? And I touched the knife. She repeatedly says this on the call. She even says at one point, God, I bet if we could have gotten the prints, maybe, maybe. She's already dismissed the fact that the, there won't be any prints on it. She, she's already putting that out there, I think, that, oh, if you find my prints on it, this is why, you know, and you probably won't get other yeah. prints on it because I touched it. It's like, who thinks about that in the moment where you don't know if your kids are going to live or die. Finally, no prints were ever identified on the knife at all. There was no prints on that knife, not even hers. So that's something, but we'll get into that. This unusual concern about the fingerprints on the knife and who did this as their children are dying was something that really leapt out to investigators from the very beginning. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about her version because her version changes a lot. And this one, this first one is, is, I mean, you can shoot holes in it with an elephant gun. It's just, it's crazy. So she, okay, so she was asleep after 1 a.m. Um, she was waken, woken up by Damon running into her right shoulder and saying, Mommy. She said she saw, sat up and saw a blur of a man between the couch and the kitchen bar going away from her, okay? Uh-huh. She, she then stands up and walks towards where she saw the intruder go. Damon was walking behind her. She then hears glass breaking. When she gets to the kitchen, she sees the man go into the utility room. She walks into the kitchen, but then she realizes the lights are not on. So she goes back to the front of the, of the, where you walk into the kitchen and turns the lights on. That's when she sees blood on her nightgown. So at this point, she has no knowledge that she's been attacked. This is her first version. She sees the knife laying on the utility room floor at that point and picks it up. She didn't see much blood on it, she said. She went back through the kitchen and places the knife on the bar. She also says at that point that Damon is still standing by the living room wall. She walks into the living room and sees Devin laying on the floor and the wounds to his chest. His eyes are wide open. She starts screaming at that point, goes to Damon, checks him, sees stab wounds through his shirt. Now, when she's saying, this is what I picture. She says he's standing by a wall. So you go over like, it's like when your kid, you know, you... You see, when you go to see if they're hurt or they're cut or they're whatever, and you kind of turn them around and you're looking to see if there's any, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. That's what it kind of sounds like. Um, She checks in and sees stab wounds through his shirt. She then tells Damon to lie on his belly and to hang on, be strong. Damon then answers, okay, mommy. She runs to the hallway and keeps screaming for her husband, for Darren. Okay. This is... (laughs) makes absolutely zero sense because Damon was stabbed four times in the back. He had punctured lungs, a a sliced liver. Um, What the medical examiner would say that he could not have gotten up from the floor to walk over to his mother and shake her awake, much less follow her throughout the house and then stand waiting for her by the kitchen and answer. Okay, mommy, there's no way he could have done any of that. He could, he he wouldn't have been able, he was, would have been gasping for breath and, you know, almost not able to move. Right. So did they find him where he had been sleeping or somewhere else no. in that living room? Do no. you know? No, they found him. Actually, what they said, and this is 
well, this is the worst part, is that they could see that it looked like he had dragged himself from where he was to towards trying to go towards the stairs. Like if maybe trying to go upstairs, maybe to his father. Or, maybe to his dad. Mm-hmm. And then he collapsed somewhere, you know, between where he was laying in the living room floor and the stairs. Um, so he got, they think he was stabbed where he had been sleeping and then yes, drugged yes, himself? Yes. So um, because he was alive for at least, you know, a little bit. Well, he was alive until he was got in the ambulance. And I think he, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but barely, barely. Um, so then when the officer comes, remember what she said? She woke up, sees the guy leaving, da 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 now, when the officer comes on the scene, she says she struggled with the assailant while she was lying on the couch. She woke up struggling with this assailant. She tells another officer that she struggles with the assailant at the counter, kitchen counter, and that's when he dropped the knife. She tells a friend while she's in the hospital that she woke up to find the man running a knife over her face. Like, I don't know, menacing her, I guess, with the knife while she was laying on the couch. She tells the 911 operator that she saw a man walking away when she woke up. This is also her, in her, state, her written statement to police, the first, you know, when she makes her written statement. So there's all okay. these different versions of what happened. Again, in that moment, you know, you could be confused and all of that. But I think something that traumatic is going to be sealed into your brain, at least some of the details of it and that's what you're going to say you know over and over this yeah and I remember and I also the one thing and I don't know if you're um gonna bring that up later but in the hospital they asked her if she thought that she had been raped so what what I heard was that she um they realized that she didn't have any underwear on and then when they asked her in the hospital um she said you know, do you think you've been raped? She said, well, when I woke up, I felt some pressure down there. Mm, okay. But again, yeah. the the whole reason that she was sleeping supposedly downstairs was because why? Mm-hmm. Because she was a light sleeper. Yep. And the baby was waking her up. But yet yeah. she can't remember whether or not she, well, first of all, she didn't hear anything until <laughs> she got hurt. Right. And then she she couldn't. She didn't hear any of that? I, I mean, none of that makes any sense. No, that's the biggest, one of the biggest discrepancies that I see too, is that this, you know, and even Darren said, oh yeah, she couldn't sleep because the baby, even the baby just turning in the crib would wake her up, not even necessarily crying. And so that's why she okay. was sleeping downstairs. But she sleeps through both of her kids being attacked, feet, you know, just feet away from her on the floor and possibly yeah. herself being attacked from, you know, whatever version you're going by. Also, they had a Pomeranian dog upstairs that barked at everything and was barking when the police came in and it was loud. And so if there was somebody downstairs, you know, struggling with the kids, struggling with her, you know, running through, breaking glasses, all this kind of stuff. And yet the dog either didn't bark or it did did bark and she didn't hear anything. Then, which I didn't know until I was going to this research the other day, is they also had a cat who was kept in a crate in the kitchen or right near the kitchen utility room, somewhere right there. And this cat, <laughs> the cop that came in and was doing the investigation walked past this crate and the cat started going crazy in the crate, banging against the sides and, and all this stuff and, the, and scared the crap out of the cop because he said this, this thing was like psycho. And it was right under the window. And we'll talk about that where supposedly the entry point would have been for this assailant. 
So, you know, all those noises are going on and this light sleeper doesn't wake up. So this is another reason why they, you know, kind of called bullshit from the beginning. Like, what? This doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We need to check into this. Here's another interesting thing to me also. So one of the things that they're talking about, you know, the entry point where they're saying it's it's the window in the garage mm. that the garage um, attached to this utility room. And I, I know what that kind of setup is because that's a lot mm. of houses around here. Um, but what is interesting is the fact that somebody would choose to try to break into an, a house Mm-hmm. Going through the garage window, in my mind, and I'm guessing, but is that that garage window is probably along the entryway on the side of the house? Is the garage in the back or the front of the house? Back of the it house. It was correct? in the back of the house. Yeah, in the back of the house. Okay. I believe so. Yeah. So, but if you were to get into someone's garage here, I, I know my house has one. I lock the door between my garage and my house at night. That was the one door that Darren said that they didn't lock. He said the other two doors, the back door, whatever that means, I guess, going into, mm-hmm. and the front door, he checked because she had asked him, did you check the doors, did you lock them? He said he didn't necessarily lock those doors, that door in between. That was something I do remember reading. Yeah. But, but I'm no, saying if you were somebody breaking into a house and the chance of you breaking into their garage mm-hmm. and then facing a locked door into the house, why wouldn't you just go into a window that went directly into the house? Right. Yeah. Oh, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah. It, yeah. Instead of having another and possibly going through there and then the door's locked into the house and yeah. you can't get through that way anyway. Right. No, that makes sense. There is um, an, what do you call it? Uh, an alley behind the house, like kind of like you have. So, yeah. so. Yeah, so it's kind of set up the same way where the garage is in the back. I mean, the only other thing that I could think is if if the garage had the window on the outside of the backyard, I mean, that would cut, maybe that could make sense. If the yeah. window is facing, is, is outside of the, the actual fence around the house. So the officers, when they went through, they see the cut screen in the garage. And um, so there's a, there's a screen window and... Apparently, the other window wasn't closed. It was just the screen was closed. That, that, and they, that wasn't really, um, it wasn't really explained, but it looked from the picture to be just the screen. And then there was a slit up the screen that they would go mm-hmm. like through the screen, right? Through the window, through the screen. But one of the- but There still should have been a glass, glass there. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking it was June. So maybe they, I wouldn't know why they would leave the window open, but apparently that was, you know, or they could. Nobody leaves windows open in Texas. Yeah, that's true. Right. (laughs) I'm thinking California. We leave all the windows open. And again, why wouldn't you lock if you, if you lock their, your front and back door and you know, you're leaving your windows open in your garage. Yeah. Then why wouldn't you lock the door between the house and the rest of your garage? Right. And here's the other thing, you know, just even even with all of that, if you thought, okay, well, we'll just we'll just give them that one. But you don't have to cut a screen. You just have to pull the freaking screen out of the you pull the latches off and you pull the screen off. And that's what the cops were yeah. saying. The investigators were saying, why don't they just pull the damn screen off? Why do you have to cut it? So to them, that looked like something that was staged that somebody would do that to stage it. Oh, this is how they got in. And that was, you know, a working theory at that time. Not much about Darren here, except for the fact that um, 
he says that he ran upstairs to put on pants after police arrived, but the police remember, the first responder remembers that he was wearing pants already coming out of the front yard to meet them when they arrived. So what we'll see with his statements is you kind of have to take them all with a grain of salt because they seem to continue to change and evolve to match what Darley needed him to say. Uh, it's weird. If you if you go through all of his statements and then look in between at all of her statements, I mean, you know, we have time to go through all that, but if you do that, you can see that he'll say one thing and then she'll tell cops another thing and then he'll go backwards and he'll say, oh yeah, this is what, you know, this, this happened. This is the way it happened. And they're like, well, that wasn't what you said. But so it seemed like he was trying to help her or fit into that, you know, whatever version she was giving. So that was always problematic for the police as well. Um, the broken glass... So she said that she heard glass breaking. That was one of the things she said that she woke up. But of course, there's all these different times that she woke up, apparently. Um, she said she heard a wine glass fell the cabinet and shattered on the kitchen floor when she walked behind the intruder. And then, so she had walked through the kitchen a couple of times because she started walking into, there's no lights on. She walked back, she turned the lights on. She goes to the utility room, she picks up the knife. She goes back to the counter. She's back and forth in this kitchen, okay? <laughs> in, you know, three or four times. But there's no cuts Quite to a few. Yeah, there's no cuts to her feet at all. They did check that none. Um, there are only two bloody footprints. You would think there would be a ton um, because she was covered in blood. Remember when they saw her? Oh yeah, uh, totally. Yeah, and there's only two bloody footprints, which were hers, leading away from the sink towards the family room. So not going towards the utility room or the garage or any of that. And the wine glass knocked it to the floor. The investigators tried to tip over that cabinet and they found that that wine cabinet had like a catch where the glasses were that you have to lift the, the glass up and slide it out. Like it's not going to fall out. There's a stop. Okay, there. yeah. So if you jostle it, they're not going to come flying out. You know, if you, you know, even if it's tipped, it's not going to, you know, fly out. It may, it may break because the glasses now have hit the floor as it tipped, but they're not coming out of the cabinet, like she said, and going on the floor. So that didn't work out. Um, that part of her story didn't work out for them. Um, then the blood evidence. This was the thing I think was the big thing for them. There was blood all over that kitchen. Um, there was watered down blood stains inside the sink. And of course, they tested all this with luminol and it tested positive for blood in there. The faucets and ham handles appeared clean, no blood on them. But when they you know, sprayed the luminol, there, there had been blood that had been wiped off of the faucets and handles. Why? Who? Who would do that? You know, the, the yeah. assailant's not going to do that. She didn't see him stop in the kitchen and wash his hands. So why? And, the, and if it was her, why would she wipe it off? This is where they're like, okay, now this is something really funky going on here. There was blood on the outside of the cabinet under the sink. So you're standing at the sink and there's a cabinet underneath. And there was blood dripping down the out, the the outside of the cabinet under the sink on the handles there was blood there was blood dripped on the inside of the cabinet like if the cabinet doors were opened and they were dripping blood as they were and there was obviously they opened that cabinet with their hands because there was blood you know present at, on those handles as well and under that sink was where all the cleaning materials were found so they thought huh yeah why would you be going in there mm -hmm. right and a bloody hand, a transfer stain was found on the handle, like I said, because they, somebody with a bloody hand actually did that and then um, opened that cabinet. But when blood wasn't found, there was no blood found on the section of the couch where she said she was laying when she was attacked, stabbed. 
Okay, here's another one, and this is a big deal with both sides. We debate this on and on, but I kind of feel like you can throw this one out. The cast off blood on her shoulder in the, in the back of her nightshirt. They found some a couple of blood drops on the back of her nightshirt that they said looked like cast off. So like maybe somebody picking up a knife or stabbing, and then it kind of comes up over your shoulder behind you as you mm-hmm. stab in. Yeah. And they said they found droplets behind her. Um, but they did a terrible job at um, being able to keep this evidence preserved correctly. Chain of command, the way that they you know put the blood in, ba- I mean, put the, the, the garments with blood in bags, that they feel like there's probably cross-contamination. At least there was a, a definitely a, they could point to that. And so it kind of, you kind of have to throw all of that out. I and mean, some people do take that and they want to debate it. And I get that, but I don't think you can say either way um, because of that. And um, so, for example, her her shirt that she was wearing, I guess if it has a split on it, right, you're supposed to lay it flat and let it dry so that they can see exactly where the blood patterns are and, and all of that, you know, and keep it by itself. It was kind of just folded up, balled up, whatever, and put in a bag while it was still wet. So they're like, well, first of all, that's going to be transferring blood from one part of the shirt to the other, you know, in the bag and being folded and all of this. So you can't really get a clear picture from that. If I was on a jury presented out in court, I would probably just throw that out. There was also an overturned vacuum cleaner in the kitchen with broken glass and Darlie's bloody footprint underneath. Um, And so they said that also looked like a staged Thing. And here's the thing about the staging. While there's supposed to be all the struggle going on in the living room and everything, there was nothing broken in the living room. There was a, 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 I think it was like a coffee table or something tipped over. I think there was like a vase with plastic flowers in it tipped over. And that was kind of it. Like there wasn't a, like things broken and, you know, all of this stuff. And I guess one of the theories that they put forward was that she liked her stuff and she didn't want it broken. <laughs> so she wasn't gonna <laughs> she wasn't gonna break her shit. I was like, okay, wow. <laughs> like, but I mean, I guess that's one way you could look at it, you know. And and apparently yeah. they had FBI, you know, kind of talk about it, said, you know, that that was what a staging would be. You're not gonna break your stuff, you know, your own stuff, um, if it's your house. Um, they've seen this before, apparently. This is something that they consider. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting. As far as the intruder theory, if it was a robbery, and you see in the in the crime scene uh, photos, there's a counter with all this gold jewelry, I mean, rings, necklaces, her purses there, her wallets there, all laying on a counter. None of that was taken. And the whatever path that this person was supposed to have been taking would have want, went right past it. So nothing was taken. And okay, so did they come in, like you said, was it, a, was it an attempted rape? Um, and then they ended up murdering the kids. And that is still a big question mark because there was no evidence of rape on her that we know of, that she remembers, that she said happened, really. Um, and she doesn't remember is what, we'll ha- what she'll say later on. To me, when you look at these kind of cases, and I'm sure you've heard plenty of these, where it seems like the, the, the people that are the least amount of threat are killed first, doesn't make sense. Yeah. No. So you come in, you see the woman there, even if you wanted to rape her or you wanted, you were going to kill her and you see the kids there. And this is what the, I guess the FBI profile said. It, let's say somebody did happen to see her sleeping on the couch through a window or something and didn't see the kids lying on the floor. 
decided to come in and they were going to try to get to her. What would normally happen, again, their scenarios that they, they do in their um, case studies, is that if there are children present, they will use those children as leverage to make the woman do what they want her to do without making noise or whatever, because you'll say, I'll kill your kids. Yeah, you do what I want, or I'm going to kill them. Yeah. Yeah, they don't kill the kids, you know, and risk getting the husband, you know, woken up and coming down and fighting with them and all of that. The sequence of events they said didn't make sense to them. Also, the way that the wounds. So the boys received deep stab wounds. They had punctured lungs, fractured ribs. It was horrible, you know, and hers were were superficial in comparison. People use that word superficial and they get all up in arms about it because they're like, well, and we'll talk about that, what her wounds were, that, oh, it could have been life-threatening and that kind of thing. But if you look at just the comparison between what the boys suffered and what Darley suffered, it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. It would do so much more damage to these non-threatening you know, children and less to an adult who could maybe fight back. Um, well, yeah, you take out the biggest threat. Right. Uh, where did the murder weapon come from, Yolanda? <laughs> in the house. Yeah, that's always a big, strange thing. So if somebody's going to come in and try to, you know, kill somebody, won't you bring your own weapon? I mean... Weapon? Yeah. Yeah. That's always baffling to me. They cut the screen to gain the entrance. Like I said, why why not just lift it out? But also, if they cut the, the screen, then, then they found a bread knife in the butcher block in the kitchen that had the fibers um, that were consistent with the screen, consistent with the screen. Like as if somebody had cut the screen and put it back in the, in the knife drawer, butcher block or whatever it was, uh, you would go inside, take a knife and then go outside and cut the screen and come back in. Does that make any sense? Yeah. <laughs> well, didn't... and it, and it, and basically what they were saying is that it made sense because they said, in the timeline that they they came up with later was that she went out, cut the screen, mm-hmm. came back in, put the knife away, and then started doing the killing. Mm-hmm. Because later on, after she had blood and it was dropping everywhere, it stopped in the utility room. Right. There was no blood around the so window. Did, no, not at all. Not mm-hmm. Not anywhere, not inside or outside. Right. Yeah. Which makes more sense because if they were... You know, and then they went out through the through the screen. There would have been some blood, something, or mm-hmm. you know, it, yeah, that was odd. People make a big deal about the disturbance under the window, whether there was there was wet mulch there, and whether it wasn't disturbed, and all of this kind of thing. Um, and I think you could make a case either way for that. It, it just seems like the debate kind of can go either way on that one, um, but because mm-hmm. uh, people took different ways. Oh well, you know they could have not stepped on that there wasn't there was this other like concrete path next to it and you know they could have I don't know there's all this stuff it's just over it yeah kind of splitting hairs a little bit but here's the big thing that I didn't know about until I was doing this research the cat crate was right under the window there's pictures of it you can see it was right under the window like (laughs) it's a little bit over like like it's maybe covering a quarter of the uh, under the window and there's like 75% of the window you could go through but this the split in the screen is right down the middle so it's very close to where the cat crate is. And remember, that cat is the one that went crazy when the cop walked by it. And yet yeah. that didn't make no- noise. It didn't, you know, it, 
There was and a reason that cat was sleeping in a crate. <laughs> he sounded like a hellcat, man. You know what I pictured? You ever watched that movie Christmas Vacation? When he's holding the, yeah. the box with the cat in it and he's holding it and the cat's all yeah. right and the box is shaking like violently. That's what I pictured when he was talking about this crate. Like it was banging against the crate and it was all going crazy. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that sounds horrifying. The top said he scared the crap out of me. <laughs> so and yeah, the crate was actually blocked underneath the window. So that's another, you know, thing about did they come in through that window? Um so we have to believe that intruders were willing to take a chance of being discovered by the husband and they could attack three people, murder two people without the dog barking, that they left the crime scene through the slit in the garage, but left no blood there and didn't disturb anything in the garage and didn't take any valuables. So all of that, um, the police kind of chalked up to this doesn't make sense. Um, make any sense. And, and I saw uh, pictures of her jewelry that was out there was a big gold watch yeah there were a bunch of rings a bunch of rings 10 yeah 10 gold rings they said she wore rings on everything so yeah i I did see that picture so and nuggy said there was no blood or scuff marks on the backyard oh the backyard fence or the gate none and he would have had to go out if he went out that way he would have to go out through that way the gate was closed when the police arrived and they said it was somewhat difficult to open and close so they would have had to you know took their hand and, you know, forcefully opened it and there was no blood, no nothing. So that was the other thing they noticed. Um, There was blood dripping on the door leading to the garage, but no blood on or around the exit window in the garage. There was no evidence of the knife dropped on the utility room floor because they said you would see blood spatter on the floor. I don't know. To me, that's splitting hairs again. They could have left some. I mean, there was blood on the knife, but it doesn't necessarily mean. I mean, I don't know. I guess they did experiments to see whether it would or wouldn't. I, I well, mean, and they also they also said that just the blood spatter alone, as far as um, the trajectory, what's the word trajectory of of the blood splatter, that it was in perfect circles and not in um, like the elliptical pattern they that it. they would see. Right. Yeah, as somebody was either running mm-hmm. or um, it, it said, it, you know, it was basically, it looked like all of the blood spatter that was Darley's right. was very slow. It, it was someone had been standing like still or moving very slowly. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like, it wasn't blood spatter where she's running after the um, intruder. Right. The the blood evidence that they, you know, brought into court and all of that, there's so much debate whether that is something that can be used in court mm-hmm. or not. And there's still a debate about it, whether it's not a perfect science, it's, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it, it gets confusing because you're going to have one side say one thing and other side say another thing. But you know, they can really only go by what they saw and what they, you know, not so much what they didn't see, I think. Um, Honestly, what it looked like to me, uh, um, in my general impression of some of the pictures that I saw, was that I think she's, if she did it, let's put it this way, if she did it, um, and the blood was, and she got blood on different places, it was all of a sudden, oh crap, what do I have to clean up? (laughs) What needs to be cleaned? What needs to be so... Um, convoluted that it's going to throw suspicion off of here or there Mm -hmm. because then all of a sudden, I mean, there was blood 
everywhere. Yeah. It was just tracks through everything. I mean, it, it, you might as well have done snow angels in this blood literally was, everywhere. Yeah. Like she had run bad. back and forth and back and forth, like you said, right. yet she had no cuts on her feet from broken glass or anything like that. So speaking of the blood, we have to talk about the sock because this is the thing that, you know, I, I, this yeah. is one of the things that really kind of made me, you know, early on think, I don't know, that's weird. What, like, what, why is that? I don't know what to make of that. A sock was found down the alley, um, down the street from her house, four houses away. And it was a white sock and it had some blood, uh, not a lot of blood, but some blood drops. And it was found to, um, the sock was found to belong to Darren. And the blood drops belonged to both Devin and Damon. Why was that there? Who would put it there? Why would an intruder take a sock with him? How would Darley, if she did it, put it there? Why wasn't her blood on it? So what was your initial reaction or what did you figure out on that score? Uh, well, the picture that I saw, first of all, it's a bright white sock. The bright white. It looks brand new. Yeah, let's put the, the most conspicuous piece of evidence we can find from our house to make sure that someone saw it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I noticed, because I did a little um, map, um, pulled up the map and looked at real pictures of, of where the house is and mm-hmm. the area around it. The house is on a corner. Why did anybody go down an alley? Go down the alley, right. Four houses down. And from what I can see in the map, it also looks like they were real close to a, um, like a major street. So if you went out and down their street, and then it looked like there was an exit out of the neighborhood not too far away that wouldn't be the opposite direction of the alley. So, I mean, unless there was a car waiting down the alley, but still, that wouldn't make any sense. Why wouldn't you park it around, you know, outside of the house, on the side of the house? So uh, I, that was just an odd place for it for me. And it also seems very strange that it had the kid's blood on it, but it didn't have her blood on it. What were they doing with the sock? <laughs> Where did it come from? One of the theories that, that they came up with, or at least what the investigators came up with, was that the sock was actually used as like a glove to, when, to not leave fingerprints on the knife. Okay, this is what, you know, when they picked it, when she picked up the knife. That could make sense, yeah. Yeah, this is what they said. Now, I don't know in what time frame they're saying she used that like that, because of course there would have been a lot more blood on it if it had been, but there was blood from, like I said, both boys on it. Um, So anyway, the way, the sequence of events they think happened, like you said, she came, you know, she staged cutting the screen, stabbed the kids, took the sock down the street, left it um, before she cut herself, came back. Then she cut herself and called the call 911. Now, of course, that's a theory. We don't know. We don't know whether that mm-hmm. happened or not. Yeah. Um, and again, it's just an odd detail that that sock is there. But here's the thing that really stood out to me when we watched that. There's a video. It's called The Wrong Man. It was two NYPD detectives, correct, that reinvestigated uh-huh. the case. And they went back just, you know, not long ago and even went and talked to Darley in prison and all of that. Um, but went back, talked to the prosecutor, talked to, um, you know, whoever they could, uh, Darren, I believe as well, 
and just trying to decide is, is she is she not guilty of this did did she get like you said did she get railroaded I wouldn't have thought about it that way but once they said that he said you know when you see that thing and it's so out of place and it so doesn't fit anything it's basically just like a non-starter it's a red herring it's obviously planted because it makes okay. no sense it makes no sense who did it we don't know you know we don't know who did but to them, it really smacked of a staging because it makes no sense. So yeah. I thought, huh, I never thought of it that way. I'm trying to figure out why it's there or who put it, you know, and they're like, you know, you just have to look at it for what it is. It's, it, it makes no sense in any no. <laughs> way. Would, why would a killer take that with them? Yeah. The only other thing that I thought it could have possibly been because mm-hmm. it did kind of look like it. Um, in the picture was the sock right next to a garbage can. It yeah, was, like the it was right next can. to a garbage can. Like, uh, yeah. Well, because that's one thing that happens here is that you roll your garbage, depending on the day of the week. Um, you know, you roll your garbage can down to the end of your alley, and the garbage um, they come down the alley mm-hmm. and pick up your garbage. There isn't somebody picking them up. It's it's the big, big, huge garbage cans, and it's the you know thing mm-hmm. that comes out and picks them up. Um, my thought was maybe, possibly, and, and you're right. It probably was the red herring, but mm-hmm. you know, one other possibility is that it was somebody trying to get rid of that gar of that uh, sock, mm-hmm. and in their haste, opened the lid of the garbage can and threw it in and turned around and ran back. Mm-hmm. And when they did that because I've done this with those big garbage cans. You go mm-hmm. to throw something in, you think you time it pr- properly, you open it with one hand, you throw it in with the other, and it hits the top of that lid as it's coming down and it falls back out. So it's it wasn't possible, to... maybe. Yeah. It was meant to go into the garbage. Mm-hmm. Because, like you said, if it was used as maybe a glove while they were holding onto the knife as they were stabbing the kids, mm-hmm. right. That they were for whatever reason, getting rid of it. I mean, you obviously can't hold fingerprints, but. Right. But then again, I I mean, I think what you're saying about the red herring makes more sense. This is the one I think why people debate this still to this day is because there was a big aspect of this case that had to do with her behavior. And of course, Mm we've seen this in lots of cases, like people are going to behave differently. We don't know. We always say, oh, well, you know, somebody wouldn't do that or they wouldn't act that way or whatever. But there was quite a few things that, you know, pointed to this. And you can say it's, it was prejudicial towards her, or you could say, no, this, this kind of shows you what happened or what, what didn't happen. Um, so one of the first things was, and this was, this came from the first responders from the cops and from the paramedics and, and those people who were trying to help the children or help, you know, the one child who was still alive, that she didn't try to help her children at all. Even when she was told to, uh-huh. when a police officer told her, get, find a rag, put it on his wounds, press, you know, his wounds because he's bleeding. You know, he's bleeding out because they didn't know what kind of wounds he had. They just knew he was bleeding. And um, and she did it. They said she, she, was, she stayed on the phone. She had the cordless phone. She was still with the 911 operator. And she had a rag to her own neck where she had her cut, um, but never went towards the children, never tried to help the children, even when she was directed to do so. Um, when yeah, she was, because her husband said he had gone and tried to give yes. CPR to one of the sons. You know, what was interesting to me was that, um, and I don't, I'm just trying to figure it out. 
So he says he wakes up because he said in his peripheral somewhere he heard breaking glass, but he thought it was far away. Right. And then she started screaming for him. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And then that's when he, he came down. Right. He came running down. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the police got there and then he said he immediately went to his son. He was trying to give them uh, mm-hmm. give him CPR. Um, and he but he was the one that met the police out in the front. Right. When did he have time to put his jeans on? See, that's the thing. And here's the thing where I said he changes his story because he, the first, the first version he told, he heard her screaming and he woke up and ran downstairs. The second Mm -hmm. version, after she said that about the breaking glass and blah, 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 then he said he heard the breaking glass and ran and then heard her scream and ran downstairs. So you can see how he kind of alters it to fit her scenario of what she's Mm -hmm. saying. So that was what I was talking about earlier. As far as the pants, they said, no, um, he was, he was outside with pants on. He just didn't have a shirt or shoes on, but he had pants on when the first, when the first cop arrived. Um, and, but he would say that he, after the cops arrived, he went upstairs and put on pants. So I don't, I mean, just these little discrepancies, you would know whether you ran downstairs in your underwear. But what I'm saying is if, if you ran, I mean, okay, say he slept in his underwear, mm-hmm. um, if you heard your wife screaming, are you going to think to throw on your pants? And, no. and if you know your two sons are are dead or dying, at least one of them is dead and the other one is dying and your wife is injured and she's on the phone with 911, when do you get the opportunity or even thought to put, hey, I better put some pants on? Yeah. Um, that shows a presence of I mind be, that you probably wouldn't have in that scenario, right? In that Yeah. Scenario. I mean, maybe at some point he... I could see that he ran upstairs to go check on the baby just to make sure right he was okay right but at that point is when you grab i mean i i still wouldn't have thought about it i'd be like okay i see the kid he's okay he's alive everything's good i'm coming back down that whole scenario and where he was in conjunction with her phone call and with the kids it, it was like i didn't hear a whole lot about his side of the story did you yeah, so he says, in his first version, he says that he hears Darley scream, he runs into the living room, he sees Devin laying on the floor in the same place that he fell asleep. That's the one that, you know, there was no signs of life. He said he was in uh-huh. the same place that he fell asleep. He sees the table tipped over him. So he sees a table. Um, he says there were two holes in his chest. He tried CPR. Air comes out through the chest as he's trying to give CPR, and there's no response at all from him as he talks to him or tries to get him to, you know, respond in response. Um, he sees, you know, Darley's on the phone at that time with 911. Damon was lying on the floor, like I said, in the hallway between the wall and the couch. There was, um, he could not see his injuries. And then he says he ran upstairs to put on pants after the police arrived. But like I said, the police said that he was already wearing pants when he was in the front yard. Um, he later also says that Darley was running back and forth with wet towels. There's no evidence of this. The officer said she did not do that. Um, but Darren later would say that she did. There was only one towel in her hand, the one that was placed to her cut neck. She never approached the injured boys or tried to give assistance according to officers on the scene. It, it seems like he's trying to fit his his account with hers, but it's not always it's not always perfect, like until later on, and then he changes some things. but um, and then again, you know, I mean, I would think the person who comes down to that scene it's going to be a little chaotic and who knows what he remembers correctly or not 
I mean, you know whether you have pants on or not, I think. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like a, a strange um, detail. But you're right. Like, when, when would you think to do that when this is going on? That, that to me, I mean, the only other question. thing I can think is if, if, unless he, unless he was literally commando when he went to bed, <laughs> and then I guess maybe you'd go put some pants on, but yeah, you know. yeah maybe <laughs> let's hope, let's hope. Um, I, I mean, I could see uh, if he had mentioned, I stopped to grab some pants and then ran the stairs because I was naked, you know, I, okay, maybe I yeah. get that, but no, I, never, I never heard that, so it's possible, yeah. Um, they said when she was in the in the hospital, again, going back to her behavior, that she never asked about the condition of her children while she was in the ambulance, which, again, is something that they would normally see, like as a car accident or something, and the kids are injured, that the parent is, is you know, pleading about, you know, how their kids are, or what's happening, and she didn't, she didn't ask. Um, the hospital personnel right away said they found her behavior very odd. She was taken into the trauma room. Um, the son, you know, her other son who was already dead was in there and he had all of the tubes and everything going in here. The, the nurse um, described it. She said it was very traumatic seeing that. She goes, for, you know, for us, it was traumatic. And I can imagine the mother and I felt, oh my God, she's going to freak out when she comes in, you know, sees this. But I guess for some reason they had to take her in there. Um, she said that it was chilling to her because she said, Darley came in you know, was on her gurney or whatever, she saw him laying on there and he was, you know, dead. Um, but she just turned her head and she showed no emotional reaction. Now we could say that might be shock, but the nurse said she had never seen a reaction like that when uh, someone views a loved one, you know, deceased in that traumatic condition. So she found that odd and she reported that. She said when she did become upset was when the police came and wanted to photograph her wounds is when they saw her becoming upset. And she was like, well, why would that be? I don't understand. When she went home later on, a neighbor went with her to the house because she's like, oh my gosh, she's going to freak out when she goes in the house. You know, there's blood everywhere still, you know, all of yeah. that. And uh, the neighbor said, she seemed more upset about the mess to her house. It, and it was such an odd reaction that she's like, oh my God, look at this mess. We're going to have to spend so much money to fix this up. And that kind of stuff she was saying to, you know, neighbors like, I was so shocked by it that I straight up asked her, Darley, did you kill your children? She asked her that because of her reaction. Oh, wow. And then she goes, she just kind of like acted like she hadn't heard me and just said, oh my gosh, we're going to have to do so much work to this house, to this room or whatever. Like, first of all, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't want to go back into that house. Exactly. Period. I yeah. mean, I think I probably would have said, um, I, you know what? I don't care about the mortgage. We're so behind on it anyway. Just mm -hmm. let it go. Yeah. I, I'm, I not, I'm not stepping that. foot back in that house. I'm getting my, no. you know, my big things and I'm out of there. Somebody go get them for me, you know, and I'm out of there. Not to mention the fact that if you truly didn't know who broke into your house and attacked you and your kids, why would you want to go back? I know. That? It'd be so scary not knowing, you know, what was going on. So but we got to talk about the biggest thing of the behavior was the, um, the graveside birthday party. And this was on June 14th. So this was a week after the murders, yeah. mm -hmm. which would have been, sadly, would have been Devin's seventh birthday. So do you want to <laughs> describe that? Because everybody's seen it. It's a video. Um, you can look it up on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, you want to go and You'll want to watch it. it. It's odd, to say the least. Um, 
So, so I guess the funeral had happened a few days after the murders, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So the headstone, everything was already in place at at the cemetery. So mm-hmm. everything was already done. And basically what I saw in the video was that they had said, you know, um, it was going to be Devin's birthday and all of the kids. This was her sister had explained this, that the, the um, all of the kids in the neighborhood had already been um, invited to this party and they had bought the gifts and things and they just didn't know how to kind of tell these kids um, exactly, you know, what had happened. So instead of making it a completely you know, ignoring it and everything, they decided that they were going to go ahead and have this like celebration of life at, at the cemetery. And, um, so you, you tell the rest of this. <laughs> so, okay. So then, so they come out there and the family's there. And, and the, the oddest thing about this to me was they invited the children to come. Uh-huh. I don't know that. First of all, I don't, I wouldn't have my child go to that. I mean, uh-huh. I think I would, I would talk to them at home, in private, individually, individually, it seems like that would be, I mean, first of all, kids at that age are not really sure about what death is, you know, I mean, not, not completely clear on that. Um, It's confusing. It's, you know, all of that. I think it would, I don't know. It just seemed like it'd be more confusing. I mean, I I think I, I understand what they thought it would be, at least what they said later that they thought it would be a good thing. Everybody be together all of that, it seemed like a little too soon and it seemed like a little bit too much of an odd um, way to do it, which was at his birthday party is going to be at the grave. So anyway, they come out with presents, with balloons, and with silly string that her sister had brought because it was one of Devin's favorite things. Now, I would think you would get the silly string, maybe put it by the, you know, by the thing, like the great, then you make a little memorial with his favorite thing. Well, Darlie gets the silly string. I don't know if the other people that did it, I, I remember seeing her. Her and her sister. Her and her mm-hmm. sister get the silly string and they're like, I mean, you know, smiling and laughing and shooting the silly string. Now this is all caught on video and goes out to the public and of course becomes this huge deal because, oh my God, this woman absolutely has, you know, this is, first of all, inappropriate. Yeah. Um, secondly, it doesn't seem like she's grieving was, was the other thing that people said. She's laughing, smiling, and chewing gum while chewing she's Chewing gum, in. wearing shorts and a t-shirt, you know, like she's at a barbecue. And people didn't uh-huh. like that. They didn't like it at all. Um, seemed like a, you know, basically now what people are saying, she's a cold-blooded person. She doesn't care that her kids are dead. Um, you know, is making light of it. Now, I don't know, because like I said, it's a week after and you could still be in shock and do something odd and inappropriate and, you know, trying to cope with your grief. But for most people, this just seemed way over the top mm-hmm. and did not go over well at all. So, um, yeah, they even had a happy birthday banner towed by a plane above the cemetery. I guess maybe that, I'm, I'm hoping that was already <laughs> because here's the thing I'm thinking. Why would you just cancel the damn birthday party? I mean, who is going to want to go? I mean, I can see your family, your family going out and saying, we want to go, you know, to the, you know, gravesite. It's his birthday. We want to go and 
whatever that is, it, maybe that's a way to cope or to deal with it or to be together. But to have all these other people there and kids and it just seems, I don't know. I can understand why people took it the way they took it. It just seems very, uh-huh. very odd and inappropriate. So that became a huge deal. And that video, of course, was played in court. They were able to play that in court. But here's the thing they said. There was, there was like, a, like you said, a celebration of life and memorial service right before that at the cemetery that did not get shown to the, the jury. But the rest of it did. So they said that was prejudicial as well. And, and really above everything. Yeah, and above everything, it was the silly string that, like... Yeah, to go and to have the balloons and maybe, you know, put the presents by the grave and maybe sing Happy Birthday, we get it. But the silly string thing, it just... I mean, it did look very bizarre. I mean, like I said, go watch it because you'll be like, you need to make your yeah, own... And it, according to, you know, according to her sister, she was the one that bought it. Yeah, she was the one brought that. it. And yeah. she says she totally regrets that now because she feels like that sealed Darlie's fate. Yeah, exactly. That's what they they said. It was one of those things that really made people kind of turn about, you know, no longer were saying, you know, we feel so, so badly for this, you know, mother who lost her children, but now they thought that she was involved because of her, her response. Um, But there was another incident, which I didn't know about that happened like a few days later. And this was on June 18th. The neighbor across the street said that um, they had this fountain in front of their house and like in the, in the front yard and people uh-huh. were coming and making, you know, the people start a memorial when something happens and they'll bring stuffed animals and balloons and flowers and cards and letters and whatever. And they'll put them there and they put them in front of this, um, this fountain. And there was a pretty big collection starting of all these stuffed animals and things. Right. So she said on June 18th, she was, you know, I guess at her window and she saw Darley and Darren were out there and Darren had his truck parked in the driveway or right in front of like by the fountain. And I guess they were starting to clean up, you know, move these stuffed animals, whatever they're going to do with them. But instead of you just taking them, putting them in the truck and taking them, whatever they're going to do with it, Darley would pick up one of the, the stuffed animals and she would throw it to him, like toss it to Darren. And then he would toss it into the truck, like from a a little bit of a distance, like trying to make a basket into the truck. And if he made it into the truck without, with it going in, then she would like cheer or high five or yay or whatever. It was like, it was a game. And I guess she, she talked about this. I don't know if it was in court or it was later on, but it was on the record where she said, and later Darren tried to say, no, he didn't say that didn't happen. He said it did happen, but it was him and his sister-in-law, not Darley. And she was like, no, it was Darley. I know I've lived there for three years. I know what her sister looks like. Her sister has brown hair. Darley has blonde hair. I know what they look like. It it was Darley and Darren. And they were playing this game with the memorial stuff down. Again, just inappropriate. It doesn't mean that she's a murderer or that she's whatever, but it's just inappropriate. And it just slanted how people thought of her and thought of him too. Like, oh my God, how cold are these people? So had you heard that story? Because I hadn't heard that story before. No, I hadn't heard that at all. Yeah, and that was June 18th. And that June 18th is the day she was arrested. She was arrested and they, they put all this, you know, it was a circumstantial evidence case, obviously. Um, you know, there was, there was no confession. There was no eyewitness. But, you know, like a, a lot of cases, it was circumstantial evidence. And they said, we have plenty to, that we believe that we can, 
make a case that she was involved and she was responsible for her children's death. So on June 18th, she was arrested um, and held on $1 million bail. So she didn't get out of jail after that, I don't believe. I don't think she had a million dollars. She was indicted on June 28th. She demanded to take a polygraph test right after she got arrested. And then they told her, okay. And she said, well, I want my husband to be there. They said, no, he can't be there. And she said, well, then I don't want to do it. And they said, okay. But then she said, well, I want a private test administered first, which that happens. People do that sometimes. Like their lawyer will say, let's Uh have her take one, a test one or whatever, right? And that was done on, you know, she was in jail for a while. This was done on October 4th. She was um, in this polygraph test for six hours. Um, I didn't know they lasted that long, did you? Yeah, I didn't either. Yeah, it seems pretty long. Um, Right after she was seen with her mother and they were sobbing, afterwards people people said oh she she failed well we don't know because the results were never released to the public um but when you well that's funny she cried then but you know she didn't cry any other time yeah she didn't cry when she got arrested i mean you could see her mugshot she was yeah devastated you could you could tell darren took a polygraph on may 22nd so um this was a you know a year after um and some of the pointed questions they asked him is if he knew who killed his sons Another question is if he helped to plan the crime and he failed that polygraph test. And so the police officer said that in his, his opinion, he was lying and he did know. Their house got foreclosed in mid-December um, and then the trial began the following January in 1997. And we, like we said, some of the things that they brought up was a pl- bloodstain pattern analysis was dis- disputed. They said the items weren't collected properly. Um, other clothing items might have gotten mixed. So they, like all the stuff that we said, as far as the things, you know, we talked about the blood evidence, the luminol testing, the, the differing accounts of what she said um, to officers, the the knife uh, found with the screen, you know, they thought it was the fibers from the screen, all of those kind of things. They said there was no evidence that anybody else had been in the house, but the people who lived there. And that was all, you know, part and parcel of their, the prosecution's case. The defense mostly called character witnesses. So they had like psychologists saying that the bizarre behavior was as a result of trauma, could have been as a result of trauma. Oh, then the wound on her neck. We didn't talk about that. She did have that cut on her neck. It was kind of two cuts. It looked like it started on the side of her neck and it was a short cut. And then there was a longer cut kind of going across her chest, like right under her neck bone. Um, yeah. And they said that that shorter cut and then the longer cut, experts who looked at it said, it, would they call it a, um, a hesitation, like a hesitation cut? Like when somebody's going to mm-hmm. try to cut themselves, like they don't do it all at once because, you know, it's painful and they might hesitate before they actually you know do any damage and they said that's what it looked like to them they did say that it was it could have potentially been fatal because it was very close to the carotid artery which she could have bled out very quickly mm-hmm. so that was a big uh point of uh, uh for the defense saying you know why would she do that she could, you know could kill herself what did you make of that um she had to make it look good mm-hmm. i mean that was one you know she was trying to make it look as good as possible and also, if she cut herself and immediately called um, Darren and picked up nine one, picked up the phone to call nine one one, she just thought she 
she was going to be okay. Right. I mean, yeah. if she did it that soon before. I'm also thinking she doesn't know. She's not a, you know, medical student or a doctor or yeah, a nurse. True. So she could maybe not know that how close she came to really. Well, she know. was, she was, she had lost a ton of blood by the time they got there. So right. You're, you're right. I mean, she probably realized that she was cutting, you know, the amount of blood, but. Right. Really looking at the wound, it, like I said, potential to be, you know, very serious, but it wasn't serious. Like it, it didn't, even though it was close, um, it did not. So it's like, it's not like she needed to, you know, go in and they had to do surgery, you know, cut arteries and, you know, whatever. It was basically skin and the layer of fat was cut. It, but the fact that it was so close to the carotid artery was something that the defense brought up. But I was kind of thinking, well, maybe she just didn't know. Maybe she didn't know that she was, yeah. you know, because like I said, look at the side of the neck and then across the chest. Again, it wasn't a stab wound like the boys. It wasn't a stab. It was a cut. And so mm, okay. that's the big difference. It's like if somebody's going to come in and stab little children and then just slice. And supposedly she wasn't moving when this happened. She was asleep. Why would they do mm-hmm. that? That makes no sense. It's, you know, you would see the same kind of injury if somebody's killing, you know, everybody and taking everybody out. Um, so that was why they thought it seemed staged. Another reason they thought it seemed staged. Um, and here's the thing too. Um, if she, she said, you know, she woke up and, and then, you know, this person's above her or whatever. Why did he all of a sudden just decide to jump up and leave? Then? Yeah. Yeah. That's what they said. Wouldn't you, there's okay. The only, there's only one witness left, you know, that could possibly mm-hmm. identify you and you're just going to leave. You know, why wouldn't you take her out too? That was something that, that the um, the prosecution also brought up. Um, was there any life insurance on the kids? I don't remember hearing that there was. I never saw that anywhere. Yeah, I never yeah. saw that anywhere. I did. Um, there, was, there, was a, there was a statement somebody said that was made about, it was like at the memorial or something, I think they said something about, you know, you've had to go through all this and, you know, you've got to pay for, for funerals. Like who would bring that up? That's so stupid. But, and they said that she said something about, about $5,000 each or something that they had, but that could have just been funeral insurance. You know what I mean? Like, Uh doesn't mean it was life insurance. So I don't even know if that's true because I didn't see any corroboration for that. If somebody just said that. And there were things people were saying. So it was okay. One of the things I will bring up is that at the, so they had all the all these nurses and and people that worked at the hospital who came to testify at the trial, um, saying that she showed no emotion, that she wasn't crying, that she you know they're like they all thought that her demeanor was odd, like she wasn't you know hysterical. Her children had been killed and all of this stuff. But in the notes in the in the hospital notes because they have the charts, you know, where they'll say distressed and crying that she was. Um, upset and crying, distressed and crying, um, you know, that kind of thing, these notes. And yet with the same people that made those notes came to trial and they said these things like, no, she was very cold. She wasn't, you know, we didn't see she was presenting like a grieving parent and that kind of thing. So I thought that was odd. And then in the book, they went and they interviewed, you know, healthcare practitioners, nurses and, and, and emergency nurses and things like that. And they said, okay, what's what you need to understand when you read those things, when you chart um, your observations of a patient, you don't give your opinion 
that you're trained, you do not give your opinion. So you don't say, yeah, she seemed like she was not grieving or she didn't seem like she seemed kind of cold or she seemed, you don't say that you just chart what you see. And so they said, so that's why there could have been the discrepancy with what they charted and what they told the court, because in the court, they were asked to give their opinion. So that kind of made a little bit more sense, but that was, that's something that you'll see the, 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 the pro Darley camps come up with and say, wait a minute, they said this, but this is what they wrote in the chart. So again, you can take those two things and decide what you think about it. But I thought that was an interesting point because I don't work in the healthcare field and I, I didn't know that. Um, but it makes sense because you're doing a, a job. You're not there to say what you think, you know, this person is thinking or feeling. You're just there to observe what you actually see. Okay, so this was the, the defense. They called the character witnesses who said she was a good mom, who said they never saw her, you know, get her kids or whatever. Um, they didn't think that she would be capable of such a thing. They talked about the wound of the neck that could have been fatal, so it made no sense that she would do that to herself. They said her discrepancies in her story were due to distorted memories as a result of trauma. Um, this is their, you know, their case that they're making. Then they don't have much else and to go on. She was saying from the very beginning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, from the very beginning, right? Yeah, exactly. And then mm-hmm. she also, later on, she doesn't remember anything. That's what the the prosecutor saying. All of a sudden, she has amnesia. She doesn't remember anything, you know? Could have been raped, doesn't know if she was raped, doesn't know if she was fighting with them or when it was happening or, you know, all of that stuff, which they didn't buy. So she wanted to be called to the stand to tell her side. Her uh, defense, defense didn't want her to, but she insisted and they put her on the stand because they didn't have much else to do. It went very, very badly. She came across not well at all. She was all over the place. The the basically the prosecution just kind of made mincemeat out of her, and she did not look good in the end. So the prosecution, like I said, was the circumstantial evidence um, plus her behavior. Talked about money issues, the need, you know, basically wanting to get out of this life of not having money, having three children to provide for, not being able to spend like she used to, um, not getting all the attention because now all the three. The, all the attention was on the children and having to, you know, do that uh, 24-7, that she was depressed, that possibly it was postpartum depression. Friends said she was angry all the time about money and would, you know, make comments and be angry with Darren about not having this money. Also, the suicide threat they talked about and all the changing versions of the story. One thing they didn't bring up, but I kind of thought of, was the diet pill issue. Because, I mean, if she did do this, it doesn't, it seems like, wouldn't it be that she would snap and do something? Yeah. I mean, you don't, and this is not a methodical kind of thing. Oh, I'm going to go and just stab these poor, you know, it's crazy. So it would be more like of a snap thing. So would that contribute to that? Like the taking the diet pills or being on, you know, having the postpartum and I don't know. I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of factors that you could. Better bring yeah. up you know of why and of course you don't have to prove motive but everybody wants to know <laughs> why would she do this yeah. and that was the thing what went against her was what people said about her like she was this flashy woman she was materialistic she was not she wanted to live the high life and now she wasn't having that anymore and she was still saddled with the kids and you know the money was going away and the attention was going away and I don't know. It's just still, but it's one of those things that we always talk about where if a mother kills their kids, that nobody can believe that it's true. 
Yeah. Because, and there doesn't, and so what's the reason? What's the real reason? And some of the reasons are so trivial that you just can't believe it. But those are the Susan Smiths and the Diane Downs, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. I wanted to be free. I wanted to date this guy or I wanted this, you know, it, it seems so horrible and ludicrous that somebody would, that would be their motive for killing their own children. And yet we've seen it happen over and over. So. Yeah. Plus you got to remember she still had one. Yeah. She still had the baby. Yeah. Which maybe she was like, you know what? I don't want to be saddled with three, but I can handle one. Or I mean, maybe something happened that night where they were getting on her nerves or they were, and they were there. Who knows? I mean, if that, if that is what happened, it's like, do we know why? No, we speculate. Sometimes it's revenge against the partner. Yeah. Um, the, the one story that I heard <clears throat> that apparently Darren said was that because they were having money problems, mm-hmm. that he was, um, he had kind of put word out there that he was looking for somebody to break into his house and steal his things. Mm-hmm. And then he was going to hide those things and get the insurance money from the insurance company. Right. And, and then put them, you know, get his things back, put them back in his house and just be able to spend the money on whatever he wanted. Mm-hmm. And that maybe because that word was out on the street, whatever street this was, <laughs> that um, someone came in the house and it went wrong and they ended up killing the kids and, mm-hmm. you know, attacking her. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't make any sense either by what you said, because, okay, so why did they kill the kids first? Right. Exactly. That still doesn't make sense. Mm-mm. And they didn't and steal anything. In, I, and they didn't steal anything. And I also think that it was, but then again, maybe, you know, of course you could always, you know, reason that, well, she wasn't supposed to be asleep downstairs. They were supposed to be upstairs. And yeah. But then again, well, he would know this. why are you killing the kids? They, right. they seem like they were asleep when this right. happened. Here's the thing. When I heard that, I thought, okay, is that, is that a case of him again, trying to find a way to excuse her or to give a, exactly. it's not her. Okay. So I thought that at first, except for it turns out he's a scammer from way back because there was another story that came out afterwards and they talked to the person who apparently he had approached. Oh, I know it was his father-in-law. His father-in-law said that he had told him before this was before the murders and everything that he was going to or he did have no i think he was going to have his jaguar stolen and mm-hmm. taken to a chop shop and then he would i guess you know people would get paid something he would you know get that insurance and that was already that was the first one the second one was the the burglary thing and they did talk to the person who said he had um approached to do it so that actually did happen at least this is what the investigators found that he did talk to somebody about you know um going ahead and and staging that burglary and so he could get the insurance money for it but it had just never happened yeah, there was a mechanic named Barry Fife, which is funny because I always remember Barney Fife from. <laughs> yeah, there's <laughs> Barry Fife. Um, yeah, he he was the one who was um, approached for this insurance scam, and he did go on the record and and was interviewed by police and all of that stuff. And it was they they 
checked it out and it actually happened. So the verdict comes in on February 1st, 1997. She was found guilty of capital murder in one count, which was um, Damon's, I believe. No, Devon's murder. Was it Devon's or Damon's? It's weird. It because, yeah, they didn't charge her with both. I guess maybe they just needed one and the one that they had the most evidence, they, which is weird because, okay, if you did one, you did both, obviously, but I don't know how the legal system works sometimes. Um, but anyway, she was found guilty of a capital murder and she was sentenced to death, which to me was, wow, that seemed surprising to me. I mean, to, that almost never happens. Even like Susan Smith, that didn't happen. Even though, you know, they knew that she did it, she confessed to it. They find it very difficult to do that when it's a young mother and I don't know, even when it's just a woman. It's Texas. Yeah, but still. <laughs> I'm like, it's Texas. Yeah, I, I did think that, but I thought, oh yeah, I don't want to be so harsh on Texas, but that's pretty harsh, you know? Um, so anyways, her, the sentence was death. So of course, all the appeals are going through. Um, in 2008... Um, the Court of Appeals grants the new DNA testing. Okay, so they found other blood evidence after the fact or something that they hadn't tested. Um, they had found, like I said, after the fact, um, dried flakes of some substance that they thought was blood near the garage and, and, and a fingerprint on the other side of the couch. Um, so they're like, oh, okay, now we need a DNA test. So now they have to go through all the thing and get the D, you know, get it approved and all of this stuff. Well, it finally was in 2008. The Court of Appeals granted a new DNA testing on blood, the blood stains found on clothing. Um, they also, there were some hairs and the, the substance found in the garage. The latest DNA result just came back June in 2015. So only two samples included male DNA because, of course, she's trying to prove was a man intruder in the house, male intruder, included male DNA. One was a, was from the stain from the lower back of Darley's shirt. The major component of that blood belonged to Darley. The minor component is a partial profile and Darren was not excluded as a possible contributor. So, so it no, could have been her husband. It could have been her husband. So there was no you know stranger danger in that DNA. At least that's what they concluded. The other po- sample with possible male DNA was another cutting from the back of the, her shirt. Darley, again, was a major component of that um, sample. The minor component was was male, but was not suitable for testing, wasn't enough to, for them to be able to tell. The rest of the DNA samples are all female and almost definitely came from Darley, they concluded. No male DNA was found in the bloody print found on the sofa back table. It was a sofa table. They found a... a that was the big one that has been, you know... Um, debated for the longest time. They're saying, see, once we know that fingerprint and and it's got to be the man, the intruder, this and that, um, there was no male DNA in that bloody print because um, they couldn't get any, I guess it wasn't like they could get a fingerprint off it, but it was the blood. Um, uh-huh. And um, it wasn't a male, it wasn't, there was no male DNA in it. So that didn't prove that. So it didn't help her. Um and I'll link, there, I found the, the link to those results, uh, the DNA test. If you want to go through all of that, if you want to go through all of that stuff, I'll put that in the show notes. Because it's pretty interesting to see how they, you know, pull those things apart and decide, um, you know, whether or not this makes any sense to retry the case or whatever. 
Um, but you can look at DNA results. I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. She's still being interviewed um, in prison. I'm so, surprised that it's drug on this long. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, in Texas. You know, I was going to ask you that because mm-hmm. what do you think is going to happen? It, it must- She's going to be put to death? Like in our lifetime, do you think that will actually happen? I mean, oh, yeah. I don't know. Oh, it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Unless there is some something else. I think it's going to go all the way. Um, I think every single one of her appeals and everything else is, is going to be expended. But, um, yeah, I, I think eventually, unless something new comes forward, yeah, no, she, she will. Yeah, that's, I mean, I that's think- going to be a huge day when that happens because it's almost like she's such a well-known figure in true crime as far as this whole case. That, mm-hmm. that I mean, it would be like because here's the thing: California death penalty means nothing. No you know, death penalty; it just I, you're going to die on death row uh, of natural causes. I think, or, I don't know, or, yeah, I don't know if it if it um, extended to Texas. I can't remember, but I know that in other states, um, death penalty cases were getting put on the shelf because of that whole thing about. Um, what oh, they were using in the, the legal cocktail, yeah, yeah. They, they stopped and, manufacturing I, it or distributing it in, yeah, or something. But I, but I think Texas was one of the states where we're like, eh, whatever. We'll use something else. Yeah, and I think it was Oklahoma too. I think Oklahoma too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, um, because because there was like a moratorium I mean, because they didn't have they were they didn't have a yeah. manufacturer that would give them that, you know whatever the cocktail was to actually put somebody to death. They didn't want to be in company. Didn't want to be involved in that anymore. So I, I don't, I mean, whether, you know, I had this discussion with my husband um, recently and his whole thought on it. And I tend to probably agree with him on this is that because there, it is such a question, I guess, because it is so strange. It's, it's like, maybe they should just convert it to a life sentence and right. just be done with it. You yeah. know, but, uh, you know, Texas is one of those states. It's all or nothing usually. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't, obviously it doesn't stop anybody from doing anything in the state because we seem to have those, you know, these cases yeah. right. more than other states. And maybe it's just because we have so many more people, but right. um, it does but, seem to happen there a lot. And I feel like they took, I mean, they took it to that level as far as a death penalty, um, I think, you know, and that to me seems like where we have to be careful because it seems like it's perception of who she is. Of yeah. course, the, the crime was terrible. It was horrible. But let's say that they kind of went with and said, okay, we don't know what happened. She must have snapped and killed her kids. Um, of course, she didn't show any more. She never admitted it. That's That's going to be a big factor. But they could have took it there and said, we want her to get life in prison. We don't ever want to see her to the light of day. But I feel like the publicity around the videotape and um, that she was this, you know, flashy person, that she was this cold-blooded woman, um, you know, all of those things really took it to that level as far as we're going to ask for the death penalty. Um, yeah. Well, I, th- I think there were, <clears throat> I think you're right. I think it was that, especially the video at the gravesite. But um I think what also really sealed her fate was the um, testifying, getting on the stand. Yeah, that was bad. That um, was a bad mistake. I don't think, I think that videotape should not have come in. I don't see what, what's the point of that? What does it tell you about 
you know, what happened. It doesn't tell you anything. Oh, well, yeah. And Very then prejudicial. The, I can't um, imagine that. the I can't I don't understand why the judge would let something so prejudicial in. Um, and, and one of the things, and I think I discussed this with you before, but one of the things that I had heard was that um, one of the detectives or one of the police, they had actually bugged the grave site. Oh, right. Because they wanted to see if there was going to be a grave site confession or something, which you yeah, can't do. And, <laughs> no, you can't do. And there was no had no um, authority to do it, hadn't gotten the permission, hadn't gotten, gone through the right channels to do it. Yeah, didn't get a court and order. When, yeah, and when they got, when he got up on the stand, um, they, the I think it was the judge advised him that he needed to plead the fifth. Yeah, that was crazy. So you're going to have a cop yeah. up there who's a de- detective, an investigator, plead the fifth. How does that not throw out your whole... Yeah, and, and they couldn't cross examine cross examine him because of that. Yeah, I mean, so, that, I mean, this whole first. Of all, I mean, I do know that there was a lot of uh, mistakes made at the crime scene. Um, this court case seemed like it became a fiasco as well. You know, uh, there's just a lot of stuff. So I can see if I was, I, had I can see why it's drug on so long. I'd appeal on, yeah, I'd appeal on those on those grounds and say, you know, this just seems. Mm-hmm ridiculous that right there alone you think could have been okay we need to to look at this again and like you said maybe um throw you know say okay we're going to convert this to life in prison or whatever but crazy stuff i mean that's this is i think why this case has been talked about for so long and debated for so long is because there's so many elements and of course and i'll just throw this out here i know there are people that have followed this case like every piece of, of anything that came out and with like a fine tooth comb, right? But, and of course we haven't, <laughs> we, we, we've done, you know, no. research um, and, you know, we're interested in the this case. Is, this isn't like the Scott Peterson case. No, me, but it, it no. is very interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I know, so we're not going to say we know what happened or what didn't happen, but we're just saying from what we've observed and what we know of the case, this is kind of the way, you know, we lean, we think this may have happened. Like I said, I, I think there's more evidence to say that she was involved than she wasn't. I don't see there's evidence of an intruder at all. Um, I yeah. do think that as far as being railroaded, I think as far as the punishment, I think that was a little bit of railroading there. Her, the perception people had and put out about her was a bit of a railroad job, and I don't think that should have come into play in the, in the court case. You know. And of course, other people have a very different opinion and that, that's fine. And they, of course, you know, may have more information than I have or whatever I've done the best I can in the time I had. But, and people are going to believe what they want to believe. She has, like I said, to this day has not, not admitted to anything. So she's still saying she's innocent. Her husband's still saying she's innocent, although he did divorce her in 2011. Did you know that? He yeah, did I did. He said, well, you know, I still love her and I support her, but, you know, we needed to move on. And she agreed. I don't know. You know, she's getting the death penalty divorce. I mean, don't you just, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it, it, would be, it, would, it would be difficult, I guess, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you do with that. But um, yeah, so they're divorced. So I guess we'll continue to see how things unfold in this. I'm sure they'll happen. But I, I think she's coming to the end of her appeals and things. So, and I think, I think that may be why, um, it's that renewed interest has come in too. Anyway, I think, uh, we've done the best we can with this case and sure people have any, you know, comments, please let us know or what, you know, what we missed. Of course, or don't, don't. yeah, if we missed something, we missed it, whatever, you know, but it's, it's a discussion. We're not, 
this should happen or that should happen. We're just discussing what we find are the interesting aspects of this case. And uh, mm-hmm. people can, you know, make up their own mind what, what they believe. And that's, that's cool. It's true crime. That's what we do, you know. <laughs> Everybody we, we make it, you know, we make it our business to find out other people's business. <laughs> exactly. You should make that your new catch line on, on your podcast. <laughs> right. That's hilarious. Uh, oh, and speaking of that, so tell us what your next, uh, when will we be getting a new episode and where can we find you? Well, hopefully it's going to be this week. Um, <laughs> well, it's uh, not perfect or functional and you can find us pretty much anywhere you can find uh, podcasts. And um, like I said, uh, we've got a two-parter coming out, which is um, my husband, Mark, my other, my co-host, he, um, this story is one that probably a lot of people know it's been done by other podcasts. Um, but it's something that, I mean, when this first came out, he, he was like, live it. I can't believe this. So it's going to be a good, uh, <laughs> it's going to be, be good, a good I think. discussion. <laughs> sometimes you agree. Sometimes you have very different points on, on certain topics or t- certain cases. Yeah. That, you know, you can take both sides of it and that's, Always interesting to hear. No, this one we both agree on. This one, so okay. So he'll both be livid. <laughs> oh, Should him more busy. than me though. This is, this is one that he's you know he's actually have has a lot of knowledge on, and sometimes you know he leaves a lot of the um, research to me, but not on this one. That's your yeah. Christmas present, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, and uh, we'll be uh, doing this again. I'm sure at some point, and we'll let people know, but. For now, uh, oh, so well, there was no ranch in this one, but no, yeah, no ranch, no, no food. What's what's wrong with us? <laughs> like, we usually have to talk about food. I know there was, huh? You didn't have any food out, yeah, silly string, but no food. All right, well, thanks, thanks again. I'll talk All to right, you. Well, thanks for having me on. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I'd like to thank my co host Yolanda from the Not Perfect or Functional podcast. Since I'm going on a short break, you might want to binge on her podcast episodes for your true crime fix. You can listen at iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also check out the podcast Facebook group for more info. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Special thanks to our administrative assistant, Lorena Garcia, our copy editor, Crystal Dernan, and of course, all of you. Thanks for listening, rating, reviewing, telling a friend about the podcast and interacting with me on the Facebook page and on Instagram and Twitter. You guys rock. Have a wonderful holiday, a rocking New Year's, and be good to one another. Mm-hmm.